0: You guys are in a unique position because you'll be able to understand things about differences between East and West that lots of people wouldn't because they wouldn't put Merchant of Venice next to Brothers Kermaza. Um I want to do that tonight so um, anyway there's, there's a lot a lot to deal with tonight and um, I hope we can do some justice to Brothers Karamazov because it's it's one of the greatest works of the modern world. I'm going to leave for one minute and I'll come back and we will start. So you guys can visit. You know that Gita's online, so is Bob. Um, Sue, welcome. It's good to it's good to see you here again. Um, um, hi, Sue. Hi there. Good to see you. Um, We'll start in a minute so you guys get your wine and your snacks. <laughs> I don't know what to say. But all I can say is it reminds me of Plato's symposium, because in the symposium, everybody's drinking and slowly getting drunk while <laughs> while, this, while, while Socrates is talking about the body and philosophy and wisdom and beauty. and um, so anyway. Go get your wine and get your snack. I'm going to be back in one second and we'll start, okay? Oh no, God. <laughs> if you do that, it'll be it for me. You want to get a chair? Nope. No. <laughs>
1: Yes. When did you get back from your trip? Uh, March 23rd. Oh, okay. I mean, I got back. I'm here. But the trip ended halfway around the world, not all the way around. (laughs) So (laughs) I flew back from Perth, Australia.
2: Oh, okay. The last update that we had heard in class was that y'all were stuck in Australia. (laughs) Well,
1: there was a... A Very close point where I think the Lord intervened and just decided my bravado and saying well if I have to stay in Australia for a month or two I can do that and he kind of knew better and so I ended up getting a seat Where it wasn't showing any seats, but a an wow. agent at the airport said I can she called her supervisor over and she said I can see some empty seats and he overrode it and I got a ticket. So
0: Wonderful. Uh,
1: yeah. yeah. So I'm home. I've been fine. I'm just staying at home. I'm home and I'm home and I'm home. That's sort of my life at the moment. But yeah, I mean, I go out. I do this sort of risk-reward-benefit kind of thing and, and uh, go where I need to go.
2: Yeah, we do too. It's always the risk-to-benefit analysis for every decision to, now.
1: My daughter about. and son-in-law are threatening Absolutely. to go to okay. University of Tennessee okay. football okay. games because her husband's Ooh. son... So. Is a cheerleader. Okay. I think all of that. I'm, every word I said if you in that if is insane.
0: If I forget. And so um, I
1: probably won't see them very much. Sit this back, fall. Just, yeah. No. They keep doing that, but I can't <sighs> believe that they're going to have football and cheerleading no. and all that kind. Of...
0: Boy, so, I wish I had. I'm so, going to get a.
1: You know, I, I just go. Okay, no judging. Just. I'm going to get a. Lover.
0: That's fine. That's all right. <laughs> New <mass laughs> on I'm trying to
1: get Mary Jane on. She's having trouble. Mary Jane, there. No, she's having trouble.
0: I don't even see her name trying to get in. Who she's been on? No,
1: well, you can't. The link isn't working. I'm going to forward her the old, the link that Suzanne sent me. You know, sent us.
0: The one that I sent today happy. is the one that everybody should use. But I
1: didn't the one get any last today. week links too. I yeah. used the one Suzanne sent last week. Should work. Did you?
0: Yeah. yeah. Um. Okay. The
1: one she sent last week worked. Yes, and it should yeah, work today. It
0: should work. Last week she said she was on a Wi-Fi out on a porch. Yeah, it's
1: not the Wi-Fi. It's that the link said it was yeah. not good.
0: It was. Good. I, I don't was know. No... Mike, Mike, I think. Um, I, I I've introduced you to Mike. He um, Mike, Mike Grosso is the young man who's been so helpful in doing all of this, and he got. He's sort of over my shoulder nudging me and guiding me, and I'm grateful for more than I can say for all the help. Um, I And I I feel like I'm in good hands because Karen a while ago made it clear she knows what she's doing. So, Mike, you don't have to, I, I don't think you have to stick around if you want to go. I know you. Um, you said you and Megan are going to plan for a walk, so... Enjoyed your walk together, and um, and I'll check if if it, if you're okay around this time. I've got that one woman on my mind, you know, from Seton, who had trouble. But I I think we'll be okay. But anyway, I'm glad, I'm thankful for your help. You take off, okay? Because I don't I don't want you to have to stay around for this technical stuff. She's in. Karen's letting everybody in. I all I have to do is sit back, and I'm going to turn this over to Karen. Um So who just came in. Jo- Jolie, hi, welcome. Good to see you again. That big smile of yours, God <laughs> <laughs> No, it is. It is. It is. Um I'm I'm trusting that Kel, or um, Tracy will be here. I'm not sure that Fred and Francis will. I'm going to start so we can get going. There's a lot to do here and and um and uh, a lot to do so I want to get going this this will pr- this will be probably our last work our last week on uh, brothers and I think what I'm gonna plan to do next week is try to put brothers I hope I'm planning on getting through tonight so but I hope um, what I'd like to do next week plan is um, to make some summary marks about brothers, but put in the context of a larger whole, the tradition that we've been working with. So, it just, you know how important that is for me. It isn't just this extraordinary modern work, which is what it is. I, I want to try to put some thoughts of my own together. I don't know what they will be, but to, to put it in the context so we can see how good it is and place it next to other works. So, and start, um, plan to start Hemingway. I wrote you all an email, so if you all would just pick up a copy of Old Man of the Sea, it's a very short work. I can't even find my my own used copy with my notes in it. I've I've got another copy. I don't know where my old one is, but it's very short. So uh, rather than require or ask you all to get one particular copy, just get whatever's convenient. It's short and we'll try to muddle through with pages, you know, if we're making references. But next week, I'd like to start with Hemingway, a few brief words on him and his life. I'm gonna go back to the few Hemingway stories that we read together. If you remember them, one of them was A Clean, Well-Lighted Place, um, to me very important, and Hills Like White Elephants, and Short Happy Life of Francis McCumber. Um, So I'm gonna review those stories. You've all read them, um, or should have um, and if you haven't you might you I think you'd enjoy going uh, some of you I think it was Karen said something that really surprised me um, she she some point of year I can't even remember when a year ago or so when I was asking her about stories because she was um, complaining forever about Faulkner and his <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, and, and, and the absence of periods at the end of sentences and but she was expressing her delight in, in um, Hemingway, and I was actually really pleased at what she said. Um, Hemingway is a modern. It's a very dark view of the world, very, very dark. And, but it's important to see it. So I'd like to go back to Hemingway, just briefly go over the stories, and if we have time, start Old Man and the Sea. Okay? It's very short. Um, it's not going to ask a lot of time. And we'll give it um, probably a couple of weeks, and then I think we'll go on to do Billy Budd, and Shakespeare's *Pericles*. It's the play that I've been anxious to do with you guys forever. And then we'll talk. I don't know what it may be time to stop. I you know I don't know whether we're going to go ahead or I. I don't know how much tolerance you guys have for all this nonsense, but we'll see. See what you say, okay? So those are our plans. Right now, before I give prayers, since I'm talking about business, just as a reminder, um, you know um, that all of this is going has gone on blog. If you Google literature is prophecy, one word, literaturesprophecy.com, you can go on and all the audios of all the works that we've done together are there, including works... Um, that we're doing at um, Elizabeth Ann Seaton. We we went back to Shakespeare. One of the works did we did we do Alls Well That Ends Well with Helena? Saint Francis? Yes. We did? Saint Francis? Sue, you weren't there? Yes. Really? Yeah. I don't Maybe remember doing it with you guys, but um, Anyway, the, we, we started with Shakespeare in that group because I wanted to start in modernity. I didn't want to go back to the epics right away. But we started with um, Merchant of Venice, Othello. I wanted to start in the commercial regime, our, 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 our regime. We did Othello and Anthony and Cleopatra and then went back to the epics. We're doing... I don't know who that was, Joseph. Joseph. I just got um we are uh, we did the Iliad, and we're about ready to finish the Odyssey. I, I've i done a couple of things with the Odyssey, like like the work that I do. I just kept discovering things. I think if any of you went back to the current issues we're doing, the current audios that we're doing at uh, Seton on the Odyssey, you might enjoy them. I mean, I've, I've been holding the Odyssey and Brothers Karamazov in my mind for the last couple of weeks. Anyway, some good things going on there, but... We're doing that. Some of you have expressed an interest in going back because some of you missed the early epics. They're there on Seton. We're going to start the Aeneid in a week or two. And I know Fred and Francis badly wanted to do that. Um, So any of you are welcome to join the group or you're welcome to go online. You know that. And the
1: link for tonight will work on Tuesday night if you want to pick up Seton.
0: Yeah. Yeah, good. It's the same link, so if you want to join the Seton group any Tuesday night, it's same time, 6.30, same link. Um, so, literaturesprophecy.com, literaturesprophecy, one word. If you go to the content page, top right hand of the options, it'll take you to every one of the authors that we've done. And at the bottom of the page are two options, Francis and Seton. And in in both of those, what I'm doing is making available the hard copies that so often I've handed out in class, so notes and um, schemes and um, study guides. I'm probably going to at some point set it up so that it requires a password to get into those, because I I don't want my study guides getting out to a you know like, um, a worldwide audience. It's they're just they're I think they're really good and they're really long and um, I want to be careful about copyright things so... But all of that's online, okay? So you're welcome to go online and and use all of that stuff. And I will get out a revised copy of today's notes because I was rushing through them and made changes since I talked with you last. I think that's it for tonight for the business stuff, okay? So let me say a prayer and then um, we'll start. And Mike has left. Good. Um, Karen, I'd be grateful if you would keep half an eye on somebody in the waiting room because sometimes I miss it and get so involved in what we're doing. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself this morning in the Mass. Um, Your words to us, the the first reading was a stern warning, stern warning. Um, two prophets went head-to-head. Head. Jeremiah, who's one of the toughest-minded prophets in the Old Testament, some people think he's really harsh, I think he's really real, um, speaking to the people and another prophet spoke to him and, and put um, Jeremiah down. Um, and, um, I mean, with real authority, real authority. He, he told Jeremiah, who was nonsense, that, um, and the other prophet, with all the authority he could muster, said that um, what was going to follow was not a period of harshness and suffering, but a period of peace and prosperity. He sounded like a modern American to me, just, just so you know. Um, peace and prosperity, and things are going to be comfortable. And he, he took Jeremiah's yoke and broke it. And Yahweh came to Jeremiah and said to him, go tell that prophet otherwise. And he does because God is warning the Israelites because of their loose ways. They're not following him. Um, They're going to face hard times. And he goes back and tells the other prophet. And shortly after that, the other prophet dies. And in the gospel reading, it's the reading where Christ is um, crossing the lake. And the storms come up, and Peter thinks that things are going to be nice and sweet. I mean, if I'm trying to pick this up with the, you know, the Old Testament, reading, things are going to be nice. <laughs> you all know the you all know the episode I'm talking about. Peter walks out of the water, and the storms come up, and he sinks. It's just, it's comic. It's just funny. It's Peter loving Christ so much, and um, it's a pretty stern reminder that. Um, It takes a, a faith asks a lot of us. um, And we're asked to always keep our minds on Christ, no matter what's happening. Because if we let ourselves get distracted by the world, the world will swamp us. It will overwhelm us. Um, So the two readings come together there. So Christ strengthened all of us in our efforts to, um, Particularly when we pride ourselves on our powers of mind. We think we know so much. We think we understand so much. The work that we're reading today is is bashing that all to pieces. Strengthen us in our faith um, and help us to be careful that we take our bearings for our faith from you. Because so often people have a mistaken faith. They, they can claim they have faith and still be missing you. Our church is our guide. It's you. Um, help us to give our efforts to you and our church, to move with you, to give ourselves to you, and um, help us in the works that we're reading to get some clarity on our way, to make the distinctions sometimes that are so important for us to make. Um, keep alive the learning in all of us that's so important for all of us. Um, so I ask for a special blessing on the work that we're doing with these works. Um, help us to give ourselves to them to open um, and to live what we learn, uh, particularly when it's hard. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. <coughs> okay, prayer, I mean poem. I told you I'd read this two Hopkins poems again um, and I'll go on to some other Hopkins poems, but I wanted to read them because um, um, Hopkins is it's such an extraordinary poet, very modern and deeply Catholic. In one of the poems you know, he—he um, he, the poem that I read a couple of weeks, um, I'll Not, I'll Not, Caring Comfort, it's a poem about despair. And he, and he's struggling with it. He wouldn't write the poem if it weren't a real struggle. But the poem is his effort. And this is so important to hear. To give words to that struggle is to help get out of them. Because sometimes by giving words to something, we step out of what we're doing. We distance ourselves. So instead of drowning in our own emotions, which can overwhelm us, to speak a word is to be with Christ. To distance ourselves. So that we're in the experience and outside of it, I know that sounds strange, but that's what Christ does. So, um, so uh, we read carrying comfort, a poem about his despair, and this one called "No Worse There Is None," in which he's dealing with despair again. Tracy, can you hear me? Uh, yes. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad you're here. I am like. Yeah, I'm giving you a T, a big T for being tardy. (laughs)
2: Okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're there you are. I was I was hoping to see you, but anyway, I'm glad you're here. Glad you're here. Thank you. We just started, so. Um and the second poem is an affirmation. So I wanted to hold the two poems together. One a poem about his own struggles with his own despair. Um, um, because it's a struggle to be with Christ and the other one was an affirmation of God's presence in the world and in, in, in one respect they speak directly to what's going on in Dostoevsky so I wanted to do these two poems next week I'll go back to doing one poem and it'll be a different poem but tonight these two poems from Hopkins Okay, no worse there is none I've got a, I've got to get a new keyboard for this class so I can sit back from it. But meanwhile, you're just going to have to do with me up at the desk close like this. Hopkins, um, no worse there is none. No worse there is none. Pitch past pitch of grief. More pangs will, schooled at four pangs, wilder ring. Comforter, where, where is your comforting? Mary, mother of us, where is your relief? My cries heave, herds long, huddled in a main, A chief woe, world sorrow, On an age-old anvil, wince and sing, Then lull, then leave off, Fury had shrieked, no lingering, Let me be fell, force I must be brief. Oh, the mind. mind has mountains, cliffs of fall, frightful sheer, no man fathom. I paused on that image last week, this idea that because we're made in the image of God, um, the mind can grasp something close to infinities. In some ways, it puts us in a danger. You know? I'm saying this really honestly, I mean, just to take a second on this. Our, our body roots us to the earth. We're grounded. The angelic mind is in trouble. The angelic mind is in danger of being tempted by Luther. The great, the great, one of the great dangers in the modern mind is to get in the mind itself to deny the body, um, because Calvin, you know, a large part of the Protestant world does not give the body its place, the sacramental nature of it. To get in the head alone is to is to be in vast spaces. Um, there's a danger there. Um, we we can escape the limits of the body and get too much in the head and he knows that so he says "Oh, the mind! mine has mountains cliffs of fall frightful sheer no man fathomed hold them cheap may who ne'er hung there for any of us who've hung in there with spiritual depths know the depths I'm trusting everybody knows this you know when we're deep in prayer suffering it's like the anguish is infinite <laughs> You know, you can cut your thumb, yeah? It's very different when you're dealing with a spiritual anguish because it, it has an infinite quality that's part of our spiritual makeup. It's part of our intellectual makeup. So, it's a danger. Oh, the mind, mind has mountains, cliffs of fall, frightful sheer, no man fathom. Hold them cheap, may, who ne'er hung there. Nor does long our small durance deal with that steep or deep. Here creep, wretch, under a comfort serves in a whirlwind. All life, death does end, and each day dies with sleep. It's like there's a comfort in sleep to rest from the spiritual tru- struggles we bear. Um, I I think I told you this, but in, in case you didn't know that, I put in a folder of Hopkins poems online in our on that you know on the website. So you can go in there and you can get a, a hard copy. You can copy it yourself and have the hard copies if you want to read along. Um, you already know my preference is listen because the poem should be heard. So it's good not to have them in front of you. Just listen. and then. But it's good to read them too because you can study them. God's Grandeur. The world is charged with the grandeur of God who will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed, period, stop. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod. We beat down the earth, industry raping it, pillaging it, exploiting it. Generations have trod, have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil. And wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. It's like we put this thing between the earth and us that makes us insensitive. We don't feel what we do to it. We've got shoes on our feet. For all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things, no matter what we do. And though the last lights off the Black West went, O morning, at the brown brink eastward, springs. Because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with awe bright wings. No matter what we do, the Holy Spirit is always there. Um, Okay, I'm going to start at the end. I'm going to read some of the questions I hope we get to um, because to me they go at the heart of the best of what's going on in Brothers Karamazov. So I'm just going to read them and then hopefully as we move through the end of the book we'll, we'll get to those questions because I, really I really want to leave some time to hear your thoughts on this stuff. Here are the questions. Um, I'm going to treat Dostoevsky as a prophet in the modern world. And I trust by now, you know that I don't take that lightly, that there's a difference between prophets who are speaking directly from God, what we have in the Testament, and what I call prophets on this side, on the natural side, who are speaking from some creative intuition with God's assistance to reveal, to keep showing to us things that we know about the world that are needful for us to grow in our faith. So I'm calling Dostoevsky a prophet of the modern world. If he is, um, is he? This is middle middle 19th century Russia. Is Dostoevsky showing us something about the trial of faith that Russia is undergoing? That has something to teach us in the 20th century in America. Because you know, one of the one of the <coughs> So the terms of the conflict in Brothers is, you've got old Holy Mother Russia, looking back to monasteries and a peasant life. But you've got all these progressive modern ideas, largely through the sciences, being introduced into Russia and um, absolutely undoing it. (coughs) Um, It's challenging the faith, denying it. There's no reconciliation. These two forces are in radical conflict with each other. It's very much like what's going on with um, Mel, uh, Melville and Moby Dick. Two very different ways of reading the world, biblical, scientific, are in conflict. And there doesn't seem to be any reconciliation between them. So is there some way in which what um, Dostoevsky is showing us is prophetic of our own world? And I want to try to put this a little bit more... Um, uh, what's the word? Um, I can't even think of the word Um, I can't think of the word Um, is there some way in which what Dostoev saying is in mid-19th century Russia this is 1680 roughly applies to us in modern America in a way that was less true a century ago Um, because the whole thrust of the conflict going on in Dostoevsky's world is from Old Holy uh, Mother Russia to socialism. Dostoevsky's already aware of the forces that are going to lead to a communistic world. It's on the horizon. It'll follow him shortly. And if you're following, I'm trusting you all are, if you know what's going on in America today, you know that the great push in America, particularly by the radical left, is towards socialism. So in one sense and all the violence that's going on in our country today, in some sense we're we're experiencing something like what Dostoevsky was describing in Brothers. So is there some way in which in which what he's doing and revealing something of the struggle in Russia in the nineteenth century throws the light on what we're doing today, what's going on in our world today. Um, here, I'm sorry. I'm gonna mute everybody because I've been told that it helps the sound quality. But don't, please don't take that personally. I'm doing it for the quality. If any of you at any time, and you know this, at any time, if any of you has a question, please don't hesitate to ask. I mean, I would really be troubled if you don't. Um, um, I mean, be discriminating. I mean, but if if, you know, we've got to, we've got, be careful of time. But if any of you has a question, just unmute your button and interrupt. Okay, and we'll take a minute. But I'm going to mute everybody because I think it's supposed to help the quality of the sound. So um, so is there some way he's prophetic of our world today? One. Um, what's the difference between Dostoevsky's treatment of the trial in Russia and Shakespeare's treatment of the trial in Merchant of Venice? This is not a small question to me. Absolutely, absolutely not. I'm not I'm not asking this in terms of literary interest. That's not my concern here. Um, You've got a trial and Brothers in which neither side has it right. The prosecuting attorney, the defense attorney, neither one of them gets it right. Nobody, nobody in the jury room gets it right. The only one who gets it right is the poet in terms of the book and us. We know the circumstances they don't. So we enter into a world in which, to go back to my claim I've been making forever, We don't read well. Dostoevsky is showing us nobody understands what's going on. And one of the functions of that scene is to reinforce one of the central truths of that book. Unless a person carries the sins of another person with him, he'll never be able to judge him properly. The self-righteous people who think they're above other people and can condemn them, only showing how far away they are from Christ. It's one of the central truths. Zosim is saying what Christ said. If you don't stand with sinners, if you think you're above them, you'll never be able to judge them correctly. Because you won't do it in love, you'll be accusing, condemning. So, in the courtroom, nobody gets it right. And you know the jury's going to come out with a, a guilty verdict and people have got to make plans to get him out of Russia because he's not guilty. In one sense, he's not guilty. In another sense, he is. We know that from his struggle. He wanted to kill his dad. Um, he, he admits that he's going to carry the burden of that. Um, so when we sit the two next to each other, what do we learn about the Russian soul? As The way it looks at reason, the way it looks at justice, the way it looks at mercy. Um, third question <laughs> to me I'm risking my life with all of you guys here. What are the differences between men and women as Dostoevsky, Dostoevsky presents them, male and female? And I want to, I want to, I want to say as little as I can. The women don't come out very well in this book. Generally speaking, the men don't either. I mean, let's be honest. The, the but the women even less. Um, So what's his final view of the differences between men and women? I've told you the last couple of weeks, remember that in Crime and Punishment and some of his other novels, there are these extraordinary women who are guides. Um, They're like Mary Beatrice figures. Um, They're absolutely essential to a man's salvation. Um, and in a couple of them, the women are prostitutes. Sonia in Crime and... Um, or Sophie... Sonia in Crime and Punishment. There's no figure like that in Brothers. Um, what's he showing us about the differences between and women? If we stand back away from our sexes, the fact that we're men and women, what can we say about the differences as he presents them in this book? And finally, um, and this relates to the question on you know, about... Um, brothers and Merchant of Venice. The, the the book ends on a note of affirmation. You know that Alyosha gathers with 12 young boys. <laughs> Remember that number, it's 12. And that's the number of tribes, it's the number of disciples. He meets with those 12 boys after Alyosha's funeral and they gather around the stone. It's a prayerful, liturgical moment. And it's then that Alyosha says, whatever we go on to do, however sinister we are, let us never forget this moment. You know from our readings, it's that moment of anamnesis, of memory, recalling something, how important that was to Plato, Dante, all of the readers that we've read, and most especially in Dante, because remember, Dante was trying to get home. That that place that we hold in memory, that our longings to get back to that place we lost, that's so deep a part of our memory. Um, but the focus in, in that and that ending is on memory let us never forget the most important thing we can do is hold on to the memory of the past because when things get bad and we're tempted to do stupid things he's saying let us recall that memory as a strength to give us strength with whatever we're going to face. Um, I don't want to give this away. The Eucharist is a form of anamnesis. Do this in memory of me. You know that there are two radical meanings of that. By and large, the Protestant world looks at it as a commemorative event to remember Christ. The Catholic world says no. that we enter into that past and relive it and reenact it in the present now. So it's a part of a now. So we're not going back to a past and rec- recalling it. We're reenacting something now. It's the sacrifice. We enter into a sacrifice. We take Christ in. We do it on the faith that it will help us to make sacrifices in our own lives. That's the s- sacred nature of the Eucharist, of the sacraments in the Catholic Church. So, and the Orthodox Church in the East. So how do we look at that ending? Um, um, if we take that and use it as a light to look back on the whole book um, what do we make of it? So those are my basic questions, okay? Um, does Desi is a, is a prophet of the modern world um, what's the difference between merchant and brothers, particularly with respect to the trial scene what does it teach us about the powers of reason and faith the relationship of faith to reason the third one is differences between men and women sexually. What are the differences? His view of that, and finally the the role of memory in our lives. Okay, those are the overriding questions. I feel like we can stop the class now <laughs> and will all go home and think about this. And um, anyway, those are the those are the um, those are some of the major questions that I have about the book at, at the end. Okay, so. Um, okay, can we, can we go ahead? Any, um, any questions for you guys? The sexual one, I think, is going to be hard to look at. It's going to, it's going to make for touchy feelings, I think. I, I hope we can survive that. But it's going to go to fundamental differences between men and women, the way Dosefsi deals with them. And I really want to look at the difference between the way he deals with them and Shakespeare, because that's, in my mind, East and West. Very, very different. Think about the role that Portia plays in uh, Merchant of Venice or any of, the, any of the comedies. Rosalind, Helena, you know any number of Shakespeare's comedies because the women are central figures there. <coughs> okay, any brief questions? I don't want to take too much because I really want to get back into the book but any, any questions? Nikki, you look you look like you're puzzling. Do you have a question? No. Okay. No, Tracy. It's so strange to see you all because we're separated by our surroundings. Every one of you has a different background. You know, it's just, it's really, we don't share a background now. I mean, we do in a, you know, we're all in everybody else's space, but it's so strange to see you all in your different places. Okay, okay.
1: I'm getting decorating ideas.
0: Say, who said that? I'm. Who Who is that? Jolie, yes, sorry, what did you say?
1: I said, I'm getting decorating ideas.
0: <laughs> I'd like to learn about them, but not now. <laughs> you could decorate all of If you could get us all together in this space, we'd be all grateful. Okay, I want to read quickly... Um, quotes that I've read before. Um, you've heard them a couple of classes now, but I want to do this again because they're central. You don't need to be sitting forward sit back. Um, do I? You don't need to keep I can't see back here, Doc. Is part of the problem. <sighs> yeah, I can't see. Just... Sorry, you guys. Um, remember, this is that middle section when the narrator gives us um, these teachings of Zosimov with his monks and particularly with Alyosha on his mind because it's so clear that he's trying to prepare Alyosha to carry on his holiness out into the world that it can't be confined to the monastery and that's why he says to Alyosha at one point leave you know go out your calling's there. On page 163 um, you don't have to go. You can write the number down and check it later. Love one another, Father, as the elder taught. Love God's people, for we are not holier than those in the world because we have come here and shut ourselves within these walls. But on the contrary, anyone who comes here by the very fact that he has come already knows himself to be worse than all those who are in the world, worse than all on earth. And the longer a monk lives within his walls, the more keenly he must be aware of it. If he's going to try to bring Christ to the world, and he's going to speak on behalf of Christ to the world, he's going to enter a world of sinners. If he does not take that world into himself, he won't be able to bring Christ to the world. And you know that one of the great divides in our world is that people who already think they're saved, it's already done, Or they don't need God. They don't need God. Um, They're good. What Zosimov is asking, I think, is compatible with Christ, that we're sinners. We have to repent. It's important for us to carry that because otherwise the danger for us is self-righteousness. We can be too proud, too self-righteous, too accusing, too ready to condemn. He must be aware of it, for otherwise he had no reason to come here. But when he knows that he's not only worse than all those in the world, but is also guilty before all people on behalf of all and for all. What did Christ do? He, he took on our sins, all of us. That's what he did. That's Dante makes that clear. That's at the center of our faith. He took on our sins to answer, and he asked us to do the same. He's, and you know, through all of, his, all of his words, we're asked to pick up our crosses, to follow him, to stand in the same way he did. So um, we've got to take up everybody's sins and bring um, him to all we do. But also guilty before all people, on behalf of all and for all. For all human sins, the world's and each person's, only then will the goal of our unity be achieved. For you must know, my dear ones, that each of us is undoubtedly guilty on behalf of all and for all on earth." So that's a fundamental sentiment. You can call it a governing tuition. I believe that was at the center of Dostoevsky's soul. That was the creative intuition, the center, that unified everything he's doing in this book. Um, On 303, remember this is when the stranger meets with um, Zosimov after the shooting, the, the duel and the stranger comes to him, and Dostoevsky or Zosima knows nothing about him at this point still. This is on page three. This stranger says, because he's so taken with what Zosima done by throwing down his gun, you know, letting the, the guy take a shot at him and then throwing the gun away. Paradise is hidden in each one of us. It's concealed within me too right now. And if I wish it will come to me in reality, tomorrow even and for the rest of my life, Zosima is a still young man here. He's hearing the stranger, remember, who killed this woman. He doesn't know all of this yet, but he's hearing an older man. Indeed, it's true that when people understand this thought, the kingdom of heaven will come to them, no longer in a dream, but in reality. And when will this be true, I exclaim, and will it ever come true? Is it not just a dream? Ah, he said. This is a matter of the soul. In order to make the world over anew, people must turn into a different, onto a different path psychically. Until one has indeed become the brother of all, there will be no brotherhood. That's what Christ did on the cross for everybody. No science of self-interest will ever enable people to share their property and their rights among themselves without offense. Each will always think his share too small. This is Dante's critique in the Commedia. They will keep murmuring. They will envy and destroy one another. You ask when will it come true? It will come true, but first the period of human isolation must conclude. What isolation, he asked. Um, that's now set reigning everywhere, especially in our age, but it's all concluded, yet its term has not come. That's the age we're living out. For everyone now strives most of all to separate his person, wishing to experience the fullness of life within himself. And yet what comes of all efforts is not the fullness of life, but suicide. For instead of the fullness of self-definition, they fall into complete isolation." We talk about the modern world in terms of the, the individual autonomous human being, that every one of us is autonomous, isolated, individualistic. We don't see ourselves as one with others. I've been stressing for a long time now, um, certainly from the time we did Dante. If we're made in God's image, um, we're made to indwell with others. Because the image of God is the Father, Son, and Spirit, indwelling perfectly. We've gone through that with Dante. Um, so we we were made to love and be loved, to indwell with one another. There's no way for any of us to do that without paying. Because the minute we take another into ourselves, we're taking somebody with huge faults. So San has to bear mine, awful as they are. I have to bear hers, awful as hers are. That we and and we're not meant to stay there. The call of Christ is to become perfect in love, to help each other get better. Um, So he says, this stranger, this brotherhood won't come about until we put away these modern ideas. About our individuality and in isolation. Um, 313, 14. Um, it, he's repeating the same thing um, that the scientific ideas, and by the way, remember that so many of the scientific ideas today come from, take the form of the social contract that all human beings act out of an instinct of self-preservation, that we protect ourselves, we're ready to kill other people, to protect our own lives. So we create this social contract. It's a form of compromise. I won't do this to you if you won't do this to me. So we live in a compromised state in all that we do through our life, in our marriages, in our world. We don't risk problems. We don't risk entering into others and accept the risks and adventures and pains um, and we, we remain in this isolated state, so it's just extending. Um, it's, it's like a slow death. Um, and finally, 591, I'm just trying to hit on some of these, what are clearly the sort of defining sentiments of the novel. This is when Alyosha comes to visit Dimitri in jail after the trial. <coughs> And Dmitri is recognized. Remember, during the interrogation, he was humiliated, um, scorned. It was it was like a scourging. It was a. It was an entering into the cross. They were accusing him of all of these things. Dmitri, being the man he is, he didn't deny any of them. He was, he wasn't hiding like most men would do, covering himself up or women. He was acknowledging everything and and all along he kept denying that he was the killer of his father but he admitted everything he even said i the only one that could have done it is me everything he does he does in the innocence of a child he just speaks the truth and something happened to him in that moment it was like a entering into the cross with christ and it brought him to this moment in 591 Brother, in these past two months I've sensed a new man in me. A new man has arisen in me. He was shut up inside, but if it weren't for this thunderbolt, he never would have appeared. Frightening. What do I care if I spend 20 years pounding out iron in the mind? We get resentful. We get resentful when people accuse us of things. Angry. I mean, I know I do. If somebody touches a nerve to me, I'm... (laughs) It's humbling to sort of set this against Dimitri, because what, what Zosimov is showing us, what Dimitri is showing us, is we get really upset when somebody offends us. What we're not acknowledging is we're not innocent. There's something wrong with all of us. The only person who was ever innocent in the, in the world was Christ. So, And he went through all the tortures. When he was innocent, we're not. So Dmitri here is once again revealing a truth I'm going to call it in the way of the cross, in the way of the cross, okay? says, something new is growing in him. What do I care if I spend 20 years pounding out iron? I'm I'm not afraid of that at all. He says, what I am afraid of is something else. This risen man not depart from me. Some new man is taking shape in him, and he doesn't want to lose it because he knows the difference between this man and what he was. He does not want to lose the goodness he stepped into. Even there in the mines underground, you can find a human heart in the convict and murder standing next to you. You know that the guy who's killed somebody has got a heart. You can look after him for years and finally bring up and finally bring up from the cave into the light a soul that is lofty now, a suffering consciousness, you can revive an angel, resurrect a hero. There's the image of Plato's cave. You know that that we're all in this cave. It's only when we begin to question and for Demetrius it's only when we begin to feel a guilt and start reaching out to others with a sense of the guilt that we share that we can help each other out of the cave. He does not want to lose this new man. Um, Why did I have a dream about a wee one at such a moment? Why is the wee one poor? It was a prophecy to me at that moment. It's for the wee ones that I will go, because everyone is guilty for everyone else. For all the wee ones, because there are little children and big children, all people are wee ones. There's something innocent and small in every human being. We are children of God. Dimitri has had a revelation that's showing him that and he wants to die for that. That goodness that's in all people that can only be brought out with help. Okay. And I'll go for all of them because there must be someone who will go for them. That's what Christ did. Today we do everything for ourselves. We want money. We want prestige. We want a job. We want to seem better than other people. We want to have more money. Um, without seeing the implications of that and the way we stand with other people. He says, I will take it all on. I'll go for all of them, because there must be someone who will go for them. I didn't kill father, but I must go. He's, he, he did not kill his father, but he's reached a point where he knows he can't grow, he can't continue to help this new man grow in him if he doesn't learn to stand in the world differently. So those, to, it seems to me, I mean, those are just a few quotes on the part of characters but they go to the very heart of the novel. Remember the opening conflict between um, all the seminarians was be- between church and state and-, and whether you're going to move towards a socialistic state or not. And the issue was, um, how do you reform a criminal? And Zosima's argument it was only when the church took over everything that you would be capable of reforming a criminal because if the state came in and imposed a law or a punishment on this guy, It may or it may not work. It was a spiritual activity. Forcing a guy to go to jail may not change his conscience at all. So one of the things that Dostoevsky is saying through the whole book is is something deeper, that it's only when you touch the conscience of a human being that you you let up on these state-sanctioned punishments that you can really touch the soul of a human being. Dimitri has come to that even though he was innocent. And the irony with Dimitri is he knows he's not innocent because he wanted to kill his father. That was in his heart. And Christ already said, if it's in your heart, you've already done it. So Dimitri is one of the central figures of this book because in him, paradoxically, are all these opposite things. He's innocent, not innocent. He doesn't deserve to be punished. He wants to suffer. Um... It's, it's, he's an image of Christ awakening in the human soul. And from there, you know that we're going to go on to Yvonne and his crisis, and it will just carry forward, okay? But those are some of the major quotes that that um, um, I think it's important for us to hold on to as we, as we go through the book, okay? Now, I want to get to the book because I want to get to these questions. Um, if you... I don't even know if you, let's see how do I do this, this? I don't even know. Sorry you guys. Um, Let me wait on it. How do I get back? Um, Quick couple major themes, background themes, just review. The last couple of weeks, I talked to you about the importance of setting Brothers Karamazov in a cosmic, epic background. That in Brothers, we're reading an epic like like Melville's Moby Dick, Dante's Commedia, Virgil's Aeneid, Homer's The We're in a we're in an epic world, and it's a world in which um, a whole people is brought into focus, dealing with the problem. Remember, the definition of the ancient epics is. Every epic dealt with a turning moment in a people's lives. That they were facing a deep national disorder and something involving the gods helped them struggle through that to take on a new identity. So every epic has at its central theme a refounding. That the gods are playing a role in helping man to answer an injustice, a disorder, and come to something better. We saw that in all the epics, we saw it in the Commedia, we saw it in Moby Dick with Ishmael, and we're seeing it here. Um, I've I've suggested, uh, just to try to enlarge or deepen the meaning, thinking back on the readings for the last few weeks, (coughs) because remember, one of the things I've been trying to do is urge everybody to keep in mind, in our Catholic world, every, every day, every reading is Old Testament New, Old, New, Old, New, always, always, and you can't hear yahweh without hearing a call to justice and justice does not mean what the modern world does legalistically justice means the human being ordering his soul until it comes into conformity with god's ways so again and again the the prophets the from the old testament or the psalmists are saying i i quoted from last week i love your commandments i want to follow your ways your laws the readings this morning, yes, your statutes, I love above all things. There is a way to God, and the struggle of the human being is to bring himself, to answer all of his disorders, um, overeating, over drinking, over sex, um, avarice, gluttony, you know, all the things we've looked at in Dante's world, ourselves. We have to struggle to, to make ourselves one with his order. So justice was the great call. The interesting thing is in the modern world, we have so separated that from Christ's love. And I've been trying to stress this point for weeks now. Christ was the Son of in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They're indwelling. He brings Yahweh, he even says, I'm doing the will of my Father. In me you see him. There's nothing that Christ did that would ever abrogate or undermine the law. He said, I came to fulfill the law, every iota of it. The modern world tends to separate those, as if love is something apart. Love is the fulfillment of the law, but the love that Christ offers is a divine love that he brought into our human nature to answer a sin we couldn't. So ordering the soul means struggling for justice, but to learn to put ourselves away, to deny ourselves, to love others in order to do that. I think the perfect image of that, you know, is is so often in literature, Dante with Beatrice and Portia and some of the other people we've seen. But the point is that there is this large order, and Russia is, is in a crisis because it set itself against it. It's looking back to an old way that in some ways was false, incomplete. And it's struggling with new ways that are coming in and dying that old way. It's denying God or religion, all the monasteries are dying up, they're dying away. So we're, we're in an epic cosmos again, back in that epic world, um, dealing with a people struggling to find its way with God. Okay. And I'm saying, I'm making the claim that Dostoevsky is prophetic in that way. He goes back to the epic tradition. Um, That every great epic poet, this side of the prophets, starts with a wound, a wound. That there's some intuition of some goodness in the world and some wrong. And it's that wound at the center of a soul, and I think most of us know it. It's that wound um, that becomes the center of exploring its implications in a larger world. Because otherwise, how in the world can you take a work as large as Dostoevsky's um, brothers with all the variety and disparity and differences of things and unify them? They're unified in that thing, that creative intuition. So that's the center of the work. And I'm, the claim that I'm making is that it's from that center that he's prophetic. Um, that in some ways he's, he's the prophecy of the advent of the modern secular state and the problems it's going to present to a Christian world. All these modern scientific ideas and the and the conflict that it's setting up. So it's just another way of repeating what I said when we did Moby Dick. Remember that Melville's doing the same thing with Ishmael um, and is telling of the story of Ahab and what's going on there. Um, so he's a prophet of the modern, secular, totalitarian state, that once these ideas take hold, people think they know everything. And one of the great ironies of these book is all the professionals, the doctors, the psychologists, the lawyers, they all think they're smart. They, they all approach what they do with a certainty, and they're all wrong, again and again and again. They're all wrong. Um, so... Um, The the conflict isn't a superficial conflict, it's going to the heart of the human soul, the call to love, the call to know the truth. What is the truth? What is justice? What is love? Brothers is dealing in a fundamental fundamental way with all these things. I argued last week, it's where we left off, that Ilusha and Lisa were in some ways um, important figures, more I think than some critics give them. Um, remember, they're the, they're, the, they're the focus towards the end of the book. Um, the last meeting between Lisa and Alyosha shows her, it's clear she's, um, I don't even know how to say this, I don't want to use psychological terms, I mean, deranged or you know, those are, spiritually, she is absolutely unsettled, she's losing herself it's clear that there are demonic forces working in her life. She even speaks about doubt. She wants to destroy the world. She wants to burn it down. She's like the counterpart image of something in Yvonne and the devil that Yvonne meets with because the devil wants to destroy. She wants to burn. She wants to hurt. She imagines herself killing children, crucifying them. Remember? She identifies with the Jew crucifying children. So we're we're watching a young woman who's been raised by a woman, a mother, who's living in romance worlds. You know, the book she hides under her pillows and everything we hear about it. She lives in a romance world. She's absolutely out of touch with her world. That's the mother Lisa's hand. So in some ways we're seeing a portent of what's coming. Ilyusha is this young boy who was humiliated because of what Dmitri did with his dad. Remember when he pulled his beard and embarrassed him. And he dies. The young kid is a man of honor. He's like Dimitri, or his father, the captain. He fights against all the boys. Um, he he <laughs> stabs um, Kolya. He's, a young imi- he's an image of a young boy, very honorable, who takes honor seriously, goes to battle for his dad. He dies. So we're watching an old world of honor. Shakespeare did this in all of his works. An old world given to honor, the, the knightly mi- middle ages, you, know, you can call it that. That world's dying. In its place, Kolya, a very bright, bright kid but condescending and lacking in a sense of honor. Everything Alyosha is doing with him is to try to help open his heart because he lives too much in his head. He puts people down. He thinks he's smarter. And yet he's the promise of the future. He's a really good kid. So in that young couple, Doskaya is once again being prophetic. He's He's showing us where the modern world is going and what it's leaving behind. Okay. Um, and the last thing that we talked about that I remember last week is that in terms of the action, and you know that what I'm talking about in action is um, that Aristotelian idea that that every every narrative consists of a plot. Remember, a plot is this happens, this happens, this happens, this happens. But the The thing to be mindful of is that that plot, those external events, this, 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 those external events are an imitation of a spiritual movement, a psychic movement from here to here. So we're watching, so the action is an interchange that's taking place in the Russian people, in the individual souls. From what was the old man to the new man, we can describe it in different ways. But it's an inward action, and and the the, the, the focus I wanted, to, where I wanted to focus our attention last week was on what I called, towards the end of the novel, the building up of reason. All all the in, in, interrogating that went on with Dimitris, um, we, 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 we became aware that all these men were using reason um, to convict him, because they were absolutely sure he was the murderer of the father so reason after reason after reason after reason added up to this conviction he gets taken off to jail what happens after that with Smerjakov and Ivan and Ivan and the devil and the trial is the tearing down because after all this building up of reasons show how great reason is we see that it was always wrong that these people who thought they had all the answers were all wrong they were arrogant condescending, above, treating another human being like a like an object, and then what we watch after that is the consequence. It's the tearing down, because everybody gets it wrong. Ivan gets it wrong with Smirjikov, Smirjikov gets it wrong with Ivan. The devil shows, well, we've got to look at that. And the two attorneys get everything wrong. So we're watching Dostoevsky explore the nature of reason in the modern world, and its effect on another human being, and, and whether it's, it, it's in conformity with the love that Christ calls it to. So those are some of the, the, uh, the general things that we're talking about. Tonight, what I would like to do is, I'd like to just briefly go over the Ivan Smirjakov things. We touched on it last week. I'd like to just take a minute, the Yvonne Devil, and then I'd like to look briefly at the courtroom so that we're watching reason engage reason. What happens when the intellect engages itself. Um, l- let me stop. That That's just a, <clears throat> a brief overview of what we've done and where we're going, and now we've got to tie it all up together. So look at what Ivan um, <coughs> and Smirjakov do, and Ivan with the devil and the courtroom scene. But let me stop and give a minute, because that's that may be a lot. I mean, it's 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 a lot of review, but it's still a lot. So, and I, I know that. Bless bless your hearts for being as patient and, and as tolerant as you guys are. But, yeah. Any questions? If not, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna take 60 seconds and go get a glass of wine. <laughs> I got a thumbs up from Jolie. Do it, Bob guy any questions before I go
1: I was just wondering when you were going to use examples from the book about um, the, the female female versus male um, treatment by Dostoevsky of you know if is there a treachery in the female that's uh, that you don't expect because uh, you would expect it more in a male and so that gets
0: wait on it wait on it. I'm going there wait I' I'm, okay. I'm, but I'm really glad. I'm, I really want to touch on that. I really want to touch on that badly.
2: Um, but you're even, going e-
1: there
0: See Even though it's 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 going to be a very touchy subject, but I really want to get there badly, badly. So I
2: have a question.
0: Who Mom. had a question? Kathy. Kathy.
2: Yes. Go. Really, you touched on it last week, but um you know about hell and on i i looked when i read this initially it struck me and then when you thanks, uh, were talking thanks. about uh Alo- Alo- yes. alicia and lisa and uh you know the different characters but on page um uh, i think it's 322 Yo. it says um and teachers, I ask myself, what is hell? And I answer thus, the suffering of being no longer able to love. And if you read further in the paragraph, it also said, not only the inability to love, but the inability to accept love. And when you're talking about yeah. these characters, um, I, I'm not saying this right, I know Alan and Mesa, about her how he loved her, but she she couldn't accept it. She could not love him, nor could she accept his love. Right. And the same thing with um, Shmirnov, the the half brother the illegitimate son.
0: Shmirjakov.
2: Shmirnikov. Yeah. I mean he seemed like he wasn't able to love or yeah. Yeah. accept love.
0: Yep. Yeah.
2: I, I don't know. It, it just really struck me, um, and that definition of hell that he gave—I mm-hmm. When I read that—I felt like that's probably the best definition of hell that I've ever heard.
0: Yeah. No, I think. I mean, all of your, all that you're saying, Kathy, I think is right on. I tend to line up my thinking on hell anytime I think about hell with Dante's Inferno, um, but but the two are absolutely in accord on that. Dante's description is where people have lost the good of the intellect so because they can't see anymore they they can't love the way they but I like I'm glad you took us back to that because it puts the emphasis on love instead of the mind Um, right it's good yeah well
2: I have no idea if this is right or wrong but before this virus started we were in St. Louis and I can't remember what how my grandchildren brought this conversation up, and I don't know if I, you know, tainted them or not, but they asked me, uh, they said, Grandma, what do you, what's hell, what do you think hell is?
0: Wow, wow.
2: I had, oh, and I had read this, and I had read this, so I said, well, I've read this book. Good for you. I said, I read this book, and hell was described as the inability to love or to accept love, and my 11 year old grandson gasped.
0: Yeah. He gasped. Yeah, gasp. yeah, yeah I mean, I can remember. How old is he?
2: 11.
0: 11. Tell him to start reading the Brothers Karamazov. Of well, he's a pretty short kid, but I, I think
2: this is a bit. I know,
0: I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know.
2: But really, uh, and that's uh, like I said when you mentioned that last week, it really caught my attention. Yeah. And especially since we were talking about the character of Lisa and Alab. Uh, how do you say that?
0: Let's go because I want to. We've got. Okay. I'm. I want to leave time for these. I'm going to rush more than I'd like right now um, through the uh, Smirchuk meetings, but. Let me touch on some pages. You can write the pages down and go back yourselves, okay? Um, in the first meeting between the two men, the most important point that emerges is that Smirchikov assumed that Ivan wanted his father dead and he was going to go to Moscow. And Smirchikov suggested that he go to um, Shemashnya because it was closer so that nobody nobody could accuse Yvonne of abandoning his father when he knew he was in danger so as if he was trying to help him escape um, calumny criticism that he he would have been a heartless son, that he would have abandoned his father when he knew his father was going to be killed so he was trying to protect him and he assumed that Yvonne knew that because Yvonne wanted his father dead in the second meeting, and all of this is coming as a shock to Ivan. In the second meeting, Smirchikov actually accuses Yvonne of killing his dad because he said, now it's getting deeper because you had a motive because you wanted your inheritance. So stage by stage, Yvonne is being forced to look at something about his character that he's never seen before. It's a little bit like Oedipus because he thinks he's so wise. He's, edu- he's, the, he's the brightest mind the you know, he's got all the answers, like, and we know people like that. They think they've got all the answers, they're really, they're really bright. But what he's having to confront is that these are things about himself he's never seen. So he's beginning to see far beyond his powers of sight before all this took place. So a little bit like what was happening with Dmitri when Dmitri is being humiliated and began to see things about himself. Okay? In the third meeting, it's at this, moon, in this meeting on six and six twenty-seven. Um, I'll, I'll even look at uh, just for a minute. I, I don't want. I really want to be careful of time because I want to get to um, maybe six thirty-three. A um, couple of things I want you to look at. Um, sorry, he says that Demetriad was himself, I mean sorry, Yvonne himself was the killer. On um, 627, weren't pretending so as to shift your obvious guilt onto me right under my stee. You are guilty of everything, sir, because you knew about the murder and you told me to kill him, sir, and knowing everything you left. Therefore, I want to prove to you face to face that in all this, the chief murder is you alone. I'm not just the real chief one, though I did kill him. It was you who were the most lawful murderer, Because, first of all, it's his philosophy. Anybody can do what they want. And everything Yvonne did suggested he was complicit giving permission because he was leaving when he knew his dad was in danger. So for the first time, he's actually um, a- accused of being the murderer of his father. Okay. Um, on 633, I just want to highlight this because it's going to get to one of the questions I'm going to ask later. 631, um, for pity's sakes, or how could I have thought it all? Ivan is asking Smirchikov how he, how he could have been so quick to think all of this up about the envelope because he gave a hint to one of the attorneys that Dmitri actually had, um, um, had something on his mind, the, onve- the, the envelope prove something. He's planting a seed. Um, and the, the attorney actually st- says that later. But but um, on 631, For pity's sake, sir, how could I have thought it all in a hurry? Ivan is saying, how could you have thought about that so quickly? It was all thought out beforehand. Well, well, then the devil himself helped you. No, you're not stupid. You're much more intelligent than I thought. I just want to hang that on you for a while. That's a toss-up line. You can say he's just being figure, but he's saying the devil was in on this because you're far more intelligent than I thought. So I just want to throw out the idea, is there a demonic intelligence at work in what's going on in some of the characters? You were touching on it with Lisa, I was touching on it earlier. She even talks about devils are there demonic influences going on? And you know, in the modern world, a psychologist would psychologize all of that. It would be reductive. They 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 would want to show how smart they are, and to do that, they would deny anything beyond. But what Dostoevsky keeps hinting at is there are demonic influences at work in what's going on in the world. Okay. Um, on 636. Um, um, Ivan says he wants to kill Smerdyakov, and he means it. Um, he actually wants to kill him, and he leaves with mixed feelings. Um, he's going to go do a virtuous act because he he plans to go to the courtroom the next day and be good, to do a virtuous thing. And you know Ivan, he's not believed in virtue until that moment. So he's elated on the one hand. But he's also devastated because he's had to face some things on his own. Now here, if I can do this. Oops. Yeah, here. You guys see that? You guys seen my my thing here? My text. Somebody say something. <laughs> you don't see this? Okay, hold on, hold on.
1: Oh, no, we're not seeing. It.
0: Um. You see that yes elentis and aporia
2: yeah you all see it I, yes
0: remember those two terms are the two terms explaining what goes on in a Socr- socratic dialogue Elentus refers to that exchange that dialogue between a questioner and a person and you know from the Socr- socratic dialogues that socrates is always going to people who think they always have the right answers that they know everything and his questions begin to make it clear that they don't know what they think they do. So the electus refers to that process. The aporia is the the word to describe the state of perplexity or confusion that a person comes to when they have to admit that they don't know. Those are old terms from us, remember? Is everybody clear? so we've talked about them before electus is the questioning socratic questioning the aporia is that state of perplexity this is really important what am i what, am I, what do I need to do here how do I get rid of this oh. sorry I'm can anybody back,
1: to, back to people's pictures it's even. gone bob it's gone oh
0: no all these i've got all these pictures down here we're back to the whole array of are talks. you there um yes, this state of aporia is crucial because in the christian world we call that a metanoia it's the turn right the conversion and it's important because it 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 represents a shift from the the pride and arrogance that we take and think that we have all the answers into humility, that we don't have the answers and we begin to wonder. So that our stance towards the world at that point is questioning. It's as if we return to the state of a child and we begin to, when Christ said, Be as these, it's like we begin to question and wonder. And if you know anything about the Platonic Cave, you know it's at that moment that you begin to come out of the cave. Because so long as you insist that you've got all the answers, you're, all you're doing is showing you're stuck. So this is that moment for Ivan. He's the brightest man in the novel, without a doubt. And he's talking with the man that everybody thinks is an idiot, stupid. All the doctors think he's feeble-minded. And we're watching him demonstrate how superior he is in his intellect to um, Ivan. And one of the interesting things that takes place in that exchange is that Ivan, begins to realize that he underestimated Smerdyakov, that he did not understand him, and Smerdyakov begins to realize he didn't understand Ivan. Because at some point he, he, he goes in astonishment, you mean you really didn't know that? Because he kept assuming that he wanted his father dead. So an interesting exchange is taking place, except the result of it for Smerdyakov is he's going to kill himself. I, we've got to talk about that in a minute. Do, Yvonne goes on to struggle with what I think in terms of the novel is a beginning of a change. He's going to be sick. It's the first stages of a spiritual purification, a change in his, in who he is. Um, I don't want to go into the devil episode because I want to get to these questions, but just briefly, you know that when he goes home that night, he meets with the devil. And there's this long exchange between the two of them, and Yvonne um, keeps insisting that everything the devil does to show he's real um, is countered by Ivan because he says that's part of me.